Yeah. Uh, so I, I'll start with um, something like, hello and welcome to a live recording of New Narratives Political Agenda. And then you guys go, yay! Okay? Cool. You've got to make a lot of noise though. If you don't, it's going to sound really sad. <laughs> it's, it's already recording. <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to a live recording of New Narrative's Political Agenda! We're coming to you live uh, from our secret location in Singapore and it's uh, I'm PJ Thumb, Managing Director and your host and with me as always is my incredibly brilliant, incredibly talented Editor-in-Chief Kirsten Han. Hello everyone! How are you, Kirsten? I'm doing well, yes. It's been a strange week, hasn't it? It's been a strange year. Strange year. <laughs> yeah. So, last, uh, sorry, two weeks ago, I wasn't here. Uh, I was off in Oslo. Uh, and you guys did an awesome job, I Thank thought. Thank you. I don't know why you need me around or, you know, why, why I, uh, you know, because you guys, were, it was a really, really good podcast. I you thought. really just went to Oslo, so you didn't have to watch Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, no, I have not read the book. <laughs> I've not seen the movie and have no desire to. <laughs> uh, so, today actually is the very first anniversary of New Narrative. One year ago... <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, so, one year ago, we launched New Narrative at this uh, nice big event at The Projector. We had several hundred people show up. Um, and since then, we, we spent a year crowdfunding, we spent a year growing the company, developing the company, um, and you know, making lots of mistakes and learning from them and learning from this whole process. We have 545 people who crowdfunded us, who donated basically for a year's membership up front uh, to enable us to reach the point that we are today where we officially, tomorrow, uh, new narratives, paywall goes up and the site starts properly. So I want to say a big thank you, first of all, to all the 545 crowdfunders and all our supporters and donors, and of course, our huge major grant, which uh, helps, uh, helped us survive this first year. So thank you to all of you here for the support you've shown us uh, for this first year. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who are not yet members, please do join, um, but uh, have no fear, the site is not uh, completely, totally, utterly paywalled off from the rest of the world. How the paywall works is that only members can cross the paywall, but any member can share any article an unlimited number of times with anyone in the world. Sharing is caring, as they say, and we really hope that our members will share our articles, especially the articles they really find worthwhile. We hope that you'll share it with everyone everywhere in the world and, um, you know, and grow our audience as wide as possible. So, uh, Kirsten, uh, new narrative, I mean, it's changed a lot over the last year. Huh? Yeah, I mean, we started with this whole idea of, oh, we're going to tell Southeast Asia stories and that's going to be the main the main sort of draw, the main sort of pitch to people about what we do. And then after that launch a year ago, we started to find that people were responding to different things. So it wasn't just the stories. People were responding to the way that we operate. People were responding to the way that 
we wanted to link Southeast Asia. And so a lot of, while we still emphasize the stories, a lot of what we do now has also been about how to create space, how to have people come together, how can we be supportive of each other, whether it's on the reader's side or the contributor's side. Yeah, I think that is that is the biggest thing. And I think it kind of surprised me, right? Because you assume that people read stuff because of the content. But it's not just, you know, when they have so many different choices about what to read online, how do they choose which source to go to? And so the fact that people responded so strongly to the values we espoused, right? To mm -hmm. the manifesto, to the beliefs, what we were trying to do for Southeast Asia. You know, I was really, really gratified by that. And it is something I think that, uh, you know, it shows that um, there is this is a, a viable business model out there for people who uh, truly believe in promoting especially very progressive values, right? That people will support you and you just got to have faith in your audience. Mm. And we also found that, you know, we had a good response from freelancers. So at, at the beginning, as with any new thing, it's a bit slow trying to get people to pitch you stories. It's a bit slow to get people to think of you as a platform where they can be published. Uh, but now it's, it's picked up and I really enjoyed the opportunity as editor-in-chief to use New Narrative as a space where we can bring freelancers in Southeast Asia together and to find ways to support each other and help each other because I felt very strongly that if we as a platform want social justice, we can't build a social justice-oriented platform on exploitation of freelancers, which is a huge problem across not just Southeast Asia, but across the world, like um, freelance journalists constantly getting ghosted by editors, invoices paid late, uh, invoices not paid at all, having to chase. Um, so it was really important that New Narrative was able to not only break that sort of bad behavior, but have a platform that these freelancers could connect. So we've been doing things like adding freelancers who write for us to a Slack channel or Facebook group where they can talk to each other, compare in uh, compare notes, basically, like, you know, which publication was good to write for, which publication wasn't, is this contract fair, um, should I be negotiating for better terms, how much does everybody pay? So, basically, no one gets undercut, because if you know how much the other guy got paid, you know if they're quoting, if they're lowballing you. So, so it's be I've really been very proud of being able to do that with the freelancers. I, I was just really shocked, you know, when I first found out that freelancers, not only do they get paid, you know, very little relative to the work they do, but that companies will spend months, right? Like some of the big, big media companies whom I won't name here, but they can go, you know, three months, six months, a year even without paying you. And it's just a couple of hundred dollars. And so we have an informal rule, right? New narrative, when they send us an invoice, we pay it within a day. And the response from freelancers to that has, you know, the, the outpouring of love that we get from them, right? I've paid someone uh, and then he's immediately tweeted, you know, oh my God, they paid me within two hours. That's unheard of. And it's because of this word of mouth that we are getting more and more pictures and, you know, freelancers are talking about us as a place they want to write for. And it, it, again, it shows there is space for an ethical business model. You do not have to screw over other people. You do not have to eat other people's lunch in order to run a successful ethical 
business that is you know respected and and successful and and uh, sustainable. Yeah, least, yeah, and I mean the other thing that we do differently from other publications is that we we thought very carefully about what's fair. So a lot of publications will pay upon publication. And so sometimes that means it, it takes a while because you file the story and then maybe it doesn't get published till next month or the month after. And then that means you wait. Uh, we found that, you know, wh- why, why should that be if the work is already done? So because we only publish twice a week um, minimum, we started to build up this kind of backlog because freelancers were pitching us and filing at a quicker rate than we were publishing. So we started to build this backlog of like a month, two months uh, lead time. And when we talked about it, we were like, it's really unfair that the freelancer is waiting for payment because of what is essentially a logistical problem on my end. So why is my kind of schedule shifting affecting whether they can whether they get paid or not, because I might schedule their their article two months later, but their power bill is still going to come at the same time every month. So we have a system now where as long as I've signed it off, they get paid, even if it's not published yet, because it's just not fair to make them wait. Yeah. One of the things, when we make any decision in our management meetings, you know, the question for us in deciding how to uh, make that decision is what is the moral or ethical thing to do? Right? We don't ask something like, what is the profitable thing to do or what is good for business? You know, we, our question is, what is the moral, ethical thing to do? And very often, you know, that is, uh, it's not something that is going to cost us money. Right? Maybe it takes us a, big, a bit more effort. But ultimately, when, you know, I'm a, I am a big believer that if you are trying to um, promote certain values and, and our company definitely is trying to promote those values then you have to live by those values so we have transparency we have accountability right we take care of each other and I think uh, you know I'm very glad new narrative has been able to live up to that in in our first year so I think the other thing that has been really successful for us is our broader Southeast Asia focus yeah you know and this was this, when we started out, we were told this was going to be a huge, huge challenge that Southeast Asia is so diverse and so different um, with so many different languages uh, that it'd be impossible to, to you know, cover it in any sort of really adequate way. But I think that the first year, we have kind of shown that it is possible if you're willing to work at it and put in a lot of effort to find those stories. Yeah, and it's a lot comes down to the really amazing sort of consulting editors that we have in different countries. So we have, as a headcount, we have two in Indonesia at the moment, one in North Sumatra and one covering Jakarta and Papua. And we have an incoming editor in West Malaysia and an incoming editor in Cambodia. Although the incoming editor in West Malaysia is replacing our first editor. Yes. So we, we have an editor. We had, yeah. Yes, yeah. And so we have four and then we're, we're still looking to expand and we, it was important to us that we didn't just have one editor for one country because, it, you know, one editor in Singapore is fine when it's a city-state, but one editor covering all of Indonesia is quite ridiculous. The number of times um, capital-centric news becomes taken as representative of the whole has contributed to 
inadequate reporting on Southeast Asia. So, for example, assuming that what happens in Jakarta is blanket across Indonesia is a huge misconception that we have in a lot of the media. And the same goes for assuming that what happens in West Malaysia is, speaks for East Malaysia. Yeah. Yeah, as as we speak right now, I am uh, you know talking to potential editors in East Malaysia and in Eastern Indonesia, in Kalimantan, in Sulawesi, in Nusa Tenggara, and uh, you know I'm I'm hoping that we can bring them on board and have more comprehensive coverage uh, coverage throughout the archipelago. But I think what is also very unique is is how we handle language. Do you want to talk about our whole complicated system of simultaneous translation and deputy editors so that yes. you know every almost every article we put out comes out in at least two languages if not three yeah i think that is a bit of a nutty undertaking that we decided to have <laughs> which um on some days uh we i strongly regret and on most <laughs> on most days i'm like it's it's a fantastic idea um so Unlike other publications that might run parallel newsrooms in different languages, so for example, you might have BBC English and BBC Indonesia and they're kind of parallel newsrooms, uh, we don't have that sort of capacity, nor are we really interested in doing it that way. So New Narrative runs a multilingual sort of newsroom. I'm using quotes for newsroom because we're also uh, we're all work working remotely, where we basically work on different languages for the same story at the same time. So we had to do a lot of trial and error about how this is going to work. So it really, at the moment, I'll talk about it in our Indonesian context because it, it all depends on what language the story is filed in. If the story is filed in English, that's usually not a problem because then I, I just edit it with input from our consulting editors who kind of look it over and say, this makes sense, this doesn't make sense, Have you has the writer explored this angle? And we kind of give feedback that way. But uh, for, for Bahasa Indonesia, we accept journalists who pitch and write in Bahasa and they might not speak English or write in English. So the, the huge question then came up with what happens when the story is filed in Bahasa Indonesia, which I can't speak and I can't read, but I need to edit. So we have this complex system now where um, the consulting editor might commission a story, it gets filed in Bahasa Indonesia, they kind of go over it with their comments in Bahasa, then our deputy editor for Bahasa Indonesia, who is bilingual, basically translates it into English and gives it an edit at the same time, and then I read the English one, then we compile all our comments and it gets fed back to the writer in Bahasa. So we have an editor who's basically bilingual and goes between the two until we are, we are all satisfied that the story is done right. And then we match the, the Bahasa Indonesia version, the English version match, and then we publish them. So that takes, that takes more time, but it's, it's a benefit that we have because we don't cover breaking news. So it doesn't need to happen at, immediately. You know, sometimes this process happens over two weeks, three weeks, one month of going back and forth, back and forth. Um, and it, it is time consuming. It does take a lot of effort. But I think it's really worthwhile because there are a lot of really talented journalists out there who never get, whose stories never get picked up in the international press. They expect them to write at a certain standard of English because those editors don't have time to line edit them. They expect the English to be, you know, pretty much the copy to be pretty much clean when it comes in. And 
it's not exactly fair because you know it, if it's not their native language they get dropped and they never get their stories never get picked up but it doesn't mean that the stories that they tell are not good and in fact a lot of the stories get lost in this way because there's simply not enough um very fluent english speakers and writers in like east indonesia or north malaysia you know yeah. so so it's really important to us that we try to build this capability of allowing journalists to file in the language that they are comfortable with now i think a lot of us are going to think that the sort of main conflict when it comes to translating between languages is between different languages but actually what we found is that the worst conflicts the biggest fights in our newsroom and i have to apologize to aisha and uh, febriana here is actually between our indonesian editors because language bahasa indonesia is used very differently across the entire archipelago so for example jalan right in singapore it means road in jakarta it means road in medan it means in medan they call it pasar i yeah. think that's what aisha said pasar pasar is road right well, of course pasar for us is market So this is this this small thing right becomes a huge issue because if you commission a story in Medan and you want to be reflective of local circumstance and the story is in Bahasa Indonesia then of course for road you use pasar but then the moment that story is read elsewhere in Indonesia and throughout the archipelago there's there's going to be confusion so what do we do how do we translate this right do we use uh, one term and then put the other term in brackets or do we translate to a standardized uh, sort of indonesian but then is that unfair to the people in medan you know and i mean especially in a light of us trying to highlight local stories that are untold by the rest of of the region so these are big issues Yeah we and and then between different languages that we also had for a while we're trying to decide if our resources are so strapped and we can only afford translation to a limited number of languages it, should we also translate to Bahasa Malaysia if it's already in Bahasa Indonesia and for a while we were like no maybe they're too similar and then the more we talked about it and the more we looked at it we were like no they're actually not similar and so now we also try to translate to both if we can yeah Yeah I mean and I think this is something that a lot of people are are going to be very surprised by I was very surprised by it of course uh you know being Singaporean and uh not speaking any sort of Malay as a native language only as a, a third language which I've recently started learning um to know that there is such great diversity in the language within such a small area was a big surprise to me and i think this is one of the the things that really um you know shows the need for something like new narrative right the fact that there is such great diversity in a region where people who don't understand it even people who live right in it you know can dismiss as oh it's just all the same or whatever but no it's you know medan and penang are so close to each other and yet they speak such different languages mm. yeah We've also had we we are very lucky in that we've had uh, volunteers come forward. So we can't afford to translate into every Southeast Asian language. So we focused on Bahasa Indonesia and Bahasa Malaysia, and then we had um, volunteers come forward and say, "Look, I can do Vietnamese, I can do Mandarin," and they've actually just 
looked at the stories and they picked the ones that they liked and then they just sent it to me in Vietnamese or in Mandarin and I posted it. But speaking of Vietnamese, I think it's also a reminder of the issues that we face because I think for me, the sort of scariest moment for this first year was not anything that happened to us, but something that happened to one of our writers in Vietnam um, who wrote a very interesting, very thoughtful article about being a Vietnamese-American and... Um, uh, the children, the child of South Vietnamese yeah. um, who moved to America after the war. And this article, we translated it into Vietnamese, we published it, it got a terrific response. But then a few weeks later, he was in Vietnam uh, witnessing a protest and then um, ended up getting beaten up by the police and dragged away. And then they found the article online. And that, yeah, I mean, it was never clear whether the article factored into the arrest or not. Um, there was some chatter that, like, you know, why didn't they just deport him immediately because he's an American? You know, surely they wouldn't want to spark some sort of diplomatic incident. Why didn't they just put him on a plane? Why did they hold him for so long and then, you know, charge him? And eventually they did uh, produce him in court and deport him. Um, but while they were holding him for, I think it was one, two months, uh, yeah, there was this question going around was, you know, is it related to the article? So I think a former American diplomat published an article somewhere, uh, an op-ed somewhere where he claimed that it was. But we didn't know for sure. Uh, his family didn't know for sure. So they asked us if in the meantime, could you just make the article private for a while while we figure out what happened? And and we did that just because, you know, when things were so unclear, we said, well, his safety comes first. So we, we made it private until the family said, um, yeah, I think we've worked it out. And then we put it back. So I think that was a bit worrying because we just didn't know what, what the Vietnamese government was thinking. Why would they pick up a Vietnamese American and hold him for so long? Um, and whether he was getting all the assistance he needed, whether he was getting the legal counsel, and I don't think he really did get legal counsel. But when they finally did produce him in court, they they didn't drop the charges, but they were just like, oh, because you're so sorry, we'll let you go, and deported him. So he's safe now. Yeah, yeah. I think this really underscores that you know this is not um, a very safe uh, the the choices we make right to promote. Uh, the values that we believe in, democracy, freedom of expression, um, and to tell the stories that sometimes powerful people don't want told is, well, very dangerous in Southeast Asia. And uh, I think that has been, you know, keeping that in mind and trying to balance between um, our the stories we want to see told, but also the safety of our journalists has been paramount for us. Yeah. Yeah, it's been difficult to, I think, in some contexts, find writers. So, for example, um, we are still having no luck finding writers in Laos. So anyone who can write openly about Laos, it's been difficult in Brunei as well. Uh, we do have an article from Brunei, but it took a lot of effort to finally find someone who would do it. Interestingly, we ne we didn't get anyone from Thailand, 
which I thought was, you know, a wash with freelance journalists and wouldn't be a problem. And then it turned out that it was. We actually had one or two pitches from Thailand that they said, yes, I'll do it. And then kind of thought about it. I was like, okay, maybe I won't do it because, you know, it's a bit touchy. It's talking about corruption with this government official, that government official. And so, so that happens sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I think, and of course, with Singapore as well, we've had pitches, we've had people actually write stories and then change their minds. So self-censorship, I think, is also a, a big problem. Right? <clears throat> people are afraid. And so we do our best to work with people. Um, you know, just like working with our members, there have been members who've been worried about being uh, a member and a subscriber to New Narrative, and we've worked with them to... Um, you know, allay their fears about how we handle our security, our database. Um, and honestly, if people sign up using a fake name and a throwaway email address, I mean, they're welcome to do that. How I, would we know? Yeah, how would we know? Right? Yeah. We have no way of knowing. I think, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one thing because when we started, we looked at models that we could emulate. So like the correspondent in the Netherlands, we looked at their membership model and the way they operate and we were very inspired by that. And so we learned a lot from them and we've been in touch with them and spoken to them about their experience and they were very happy to, to share. But the one thing that we've had to figure out for ourselves is this soft political climate because the correspondent in the Netherlands doesn't need to worry about government arresting their journalists or like trying to fi want to know who's in your membership database or just picking you up and being able to confiscate your computer. That's not something that they've had to reckon with. The other thing that they didn't really have to deal with is the diversity of languages which we have. Yeah. And, and legal systems. Yes. I mean, they're in the EU, everyone can pay euros. For us, you know, we're slowly working towards um, being able to take payments in a variety of different Southeast Asian currencies. Um, and Malaysia should, you know, our ability to take payments in Malaysian ringgit and especially bank transfers in Malaysian ringgit should uh, come through any day now because the company's registered in Malaysia and we just uh, you know we've submitted all the uh, documents needed to open a bank account so that'll take some time and Indonesia will be next um, but it's um, that's also been a, a huge problem like uh, different cultural circumstance right in Indonesia even for something like Tokopedia which is the Amazon people don't really pay for stuff using credit cards they buy something and then they do a bank transfer and then they send over uh, proof of the transfer and then the goods are released and sent to them. And so we have to respect, uh, you know, these local uh, ways of doing business. Right? Yeah, I think yeah. It, that was a learning curve because it highlighted to me a sort of complacency in the way I think as well because in Singapore, I'm like, you know, I use PayPal, I use credit card, I go to Amazon, I buy whatever I want, it's done. And I just kind of assume that, oh, everybody must do that. And then it turns out that, no, that's not the case in Indonesia, that's not the case in Malaysia. In fact, one of our editors was saying that even in Indonesia, you wouldn't really do mobile or internet banking because the, the internet banking website is horrible and it crashes. And so people do still literally like to go to the ATM and do the transfer. That way it's seen as more reliable. And... Until, you know, someone from Indonesia actually just said that, I was just like, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. I just assumed that whatever I do in Singapore must be clearly replicated all across Southeast Asia. Yeah, I mean, we think of Southeast Asia as this region where capital flows freely, right? Singapore money is invested all over the region and 
you know, people all over the region bank their money in Singapore and somehow it all works. And, but no. And part of it, I think, is trust in government, trust in how things are done. Um, part of it is uh, lack of infrastructure. Uh, you know, there's underdevelopment in a lot of parts of Southeast Asia. So we have to take all this into account. And, you know, also how we, how we run our own newsroom. You know, one of the interesting things for me is, um, has been the biggest obstacle to us running uh, smoothly. You know, you think of the internet as making all these things smooth and being able to talk online, Skype in, have our regular weekly meetings all online. But uh, for our editor in Medan, right, she experiences power cuts. So it doesn't matter if she has, she has a very fast internet line in her house. But if she gets a power cut, she's not going to be there. She can't be, she literally just has to sit there. Sometimes she will get on her phone and, and, and start, you know, messaging us to try and participate in the meeting. But otherwise, she just has to wait for the power to come back on. So there's this, this whole idea of uh, this smoothless, seamless internet that really actually is still very reliant on very old world, old school infrastructure. And having to deal with all of that is also part of our challenge. Yeah. I think I've been, you know, it's been really fascinating also to learn from the diversity of experience within a new narrative team. So, for example, um, the way journalists approach writing and the way researchers approach writing, the sort of way we think about it. So, for example, we all be arguing about a journalism feature and... Journalists are kind of very impatient about this, right? We always feel like this story is timely now and so we should be doing it because people will be reading it and they're interested now and then PJ will come in and be like, we have time to think about it. Why don't everybody take like a week or two weeks and, and then we'll come back and we'll decide and then all the journalists are just like, what are you talking about? We should have done this yesterday and you know. Yeah. And so that the whole kind of approach to speed, to style. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really different. As an academic, I found that, you know, you think writing is writing, but no, I write, I think so differently from Kirsten and how she writes. It is something, it, 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 I sometimes marvel at her ability to just crank out, you know, copy, write, you know, <laughs> Facebook posts, tweets. It just, it's a never-ending stream. I take two hours to write a Facebook post. <laughs> then I sit on it overnight and then I look at it again and then I decide if I want to publish it because that's how I do it as an academic, right? You write, write, write slowly and then you sit on it for a while then you come back to it and you think more about it and then you rewrite it and you edit and, you know, and, and there's Kirsten just, just pumping out stuff. I mean, it's just amazing. And of course, each approach has its different strengths and weaknesses. Um, but um, ultimately, you know, we all want the same thing and we all want to produce high quality work. And I think our different approaches have meshed well and, and worked well. Um, you know, and, and of course, this is just journalism and research. We also have uh, our comics and how they work, which is very different. You know, and unfortunately, Sunny couldn't be here today, but uh, he'd tell you that they work very differently from people, from us writers. Um, and then, uh, you know, we also have our podcasts, our recorded stuff, our videos. So it's all very different ways of working, which uh, in a very small team where everyone has to be a, a generalist and work closely together and everyone has to build up a lot of trust and understanding, right? It's very easy to have misunderstandings when your main uh, form of communication is WhatsApp or Slack, 
right? And you're messaging each other and it's so easy to misunderstand. So you need to build up a lot of confidence in each other that you're going to deliver, that you're going to produce something good, you know, that you are committed. So this is a good point, I think, to remind everyone that we love your ideas. We love your thoughts. Uh, we'd love to know more about how you use New Narrative. So if you have any ideas, please just uh, write to us, feedback at newnarrative.com or just come talk to us or post on our Facebook page or, you know, just reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, I think we have to mention the sort of one of the biggest turning points of our year and that's the Accra decision in early April. Mm -hmm. So to give our listeners uh, and our audience some, some feedback, uh, I mean some uh, background, uh, what happened was, of course, that uh, as as we said at our launch, uh, and uh, you know we've said repeatedly that we in we are a Southeast Asian company and we want to register all our uh, offices an office in every Southeast Asian country. We have our head office in the UK. Today we have offices in KL and in Jakarta. But since uh, Kirsten and I are Singaporean, and of course Sunny is as well, it seemed logical for us to start by registering an office, a wholly owned subsidiary of Observatory Southeast Asia uh, in Singapore. Unfortunately, um, the uh, um, ACRA, the registrar, the company's registrar, um, said no, basically. Uh, we applied, was it February 8th, yeah. I think? And then around April 12, I think, they re released a press statement saying that we were denied registration uh, on the grounds that we were, quote-unquote, against the national interest. Yeah, contrary to Singapore's national interest yeah. to allow us to register. Well, <laughs> 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 I mean, there's several things about that, right? I mean, first of all, one, one thing I thought was, was interesting in that press statement, oh, first of all, the press statement, from what I understand, is unprecedented. I mean, they've never issued a... You know, they've turned down companies before but never issued a press statement. Another is how they, they talked about us interfering in Singapore's domestic politics, but every article that they cited in the press release was an article about another country. You know? Yeah, and, so they said yeah. that we were, we were clearly political in nature because we published stories that, were, that was critical of politics in regional countries. Mm. Um, so how is yeah. that interfering in Singapore's domestic politics? Uh, I, don't quite I think understand. the the interference was then the democracy classrooms that we were ah, going okay, in okay. Singapore. So right. we were politically political generally, and then doing democracy classrooms in Singapore, and then right. that was foreign funding. So that was seen as interference. Right. Okay. And yeah. There were many okay. moving parts to this. Okay. Yeah. I always get confused by these things, um, and so. As a result, we've had to stop the democracy classrooms. And the open meetings. And the open meetings, which is, you know, which, I mean, we're going to try and bring back the open meetings and do them online, right? Uh, but there was something really, really gratifying and valuable about meeting all our members face-to-face -face on a monthly basis, which, you know, I really enjoyed the open mm -hmm. meetings. Sometimes we got three people. Most of the time we got 15 or so, you know, and it was a... Really interesting to hear all the diverse views. I know many of the people in this room have been to some of the open meetings. I recognize a lot of faces. Um, but I think that that has been the main impact on us. Yeah, yeah. that's the main thing in Singapore that's changed our operations. So we haven't mm -hmm. changed um, what we do with the website at all. Um, because I was reading the press release and it was kind of 
trying to figure out how to respond because they said you're political because you publish uh, articles that are critical of politics in regional countries. And they said it like it was an accusation and I was just mm-hmm. like, yes, yeah. that's what we do. It's, it's what news websites do. Like, to me, this is descriptive, right? It's not accusatory. Yeah. So I don't know how, to, how I'm supposed to respond to it. I was like, it's, it's not offensive and neither is it dangerous. So yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, as part of our response, we send them a long list of Straits Times articles, Channel News Asia articles, which are critical of other countries. You know, what, what, what is exactly the problem here? Yeah. And, and also like the, the articles that they kind of cited that was critical of politics in regional countries were actually written by nationals of that country. So yeah. it's not like I wrote it, right? I just edited it, but it was actually written by people, citizens of that country, writing about their own country for New Narrative, which is a Southeast Asian site. So it, it was really kind of odd yeah. to, to respond to that. I think, I mean, as I've said before, we made clear at the launch again and again, we're a Southeast Asian site. So this idea that somehow, you know, we're just out to interfere in one part of Southeast Asia when our vision is so much bigger and broader, you know, I also, I'm not sure what that says about Accra and, and how our government sees us. I, I, I don't like, I can't speculate, but it's it's definitely an, a very a, a great misunderstanding of what new narratives vision is and what we're trying to do. So I really, yeah, I just I, I don't I don't understand how they think. I have to admit a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, when we we were talking about new narrative even before launching, it was kind of a, you know would Singaporeans even respond to a Southeast Asian site because for so long we kind of don't really talk about our place in Southeast Asia or in ASEAN. And even even the establishment themselves have lamented, like, why don't young Singaporeans know more about ASEAN? Why don't young Singaporeans know more about Southeast Asia? And, and I think that's true because we often compare ourselves to like Hong Kong, Tokyo, New York, London, and we don't really think about what's happening next door. Um, you know, it's I think it's very telling that one year of editing New Narrative taught me more about Southeast Asia than you know, 10 years in school in Singapore. And sometimes it gets really embarrassing because I'm supposed to be editor-in-chief and then we have team meetings and then the Indonesia editor is discussing something and then PJ, because his researcher, is discussing something and I'm like quietly on Wikipedia like, <laughs> what is Pancasila? So, then, oh, yes, yes, we should talk yeah. about it. You know, as editor-in-chief and I'm like, never heard of this. So Singapore. that's why you're always on the computer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's really kind of, you know, it's shameful that we are in Singapore and know so little about our neighbours. And, and it's a lost opportunity because then we don't see the parallels that we have. So, for example, when we published a story about Thailand clamping down on migrant workers and how this actually further marginalises like, migrant workers, like Cambodians who are in Thailand. And I was editing it and so much of it sounds very similar to what our migrant worker groups in Singapore have said about particular measures against, you know, Bangladeshi or Filipino migrant workers. And it's so similar. And then, you know, Malaysian, a Malaysian researcher pitches us a story about gerrymandering during the elections. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, we all know what this means and what it's like. And so all these sorts of parallels that don't really get explored and we don't realize, we don't seem to realize the context that we are in. Yeah. 
And I don't think it's healthy for us to be this sort of insular within our region. Yeah, I think uh, one of my favorite examples is the story we did on Koh Pik in uh, Cambodia, mm-hmm. in, in Phnom Penh, yeah. uh, where you know a government says, we need development. And then they will seize land and then drive off the people who've been living there. Some of them have titles, some of them are squatters, but they'll drive all these people off. And then they'll build a bunch of shiny, new, expensive flats, right? And then, uh, like, uh, maybe, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 kilometers away, they'll throw up a bunch of other flats, and they'll shift all these people who used to be there 30 kilometers down the road to a bunch of other flats. And those people then are 30 kilometers from their workplaces, from their schools, from their, you know, communities. And then the shiny new flats are sold mostly to foreigners who spend a huge amount of money and drive, you know, property prices up. And, you know, all of this is done in the name of development. And, you know, sometimes you see, you know, in, in Cambodia, for example, you know, a, a couple of cronies get, you know, to skim off uh, funds or, or the contracts go to well-connected people. And again, this is a pattern all over Southeast Asia, right? Capitalism, uh, neoliberalism, the, this whole narrative of development. But development for who, right? Development to what purpose? And who benefits from this development? All of these are really important questions that all of us face. And, you know, it's really important that we, I think Southeast Asia, we stop to think about this unrelenting rush uh, towards this very vague idea of development and start asking really, really important questions about who's actually benefiting. Yeah, and I think we had also like a story about um, the anti-colonial museum in Indonesia and then discussions about what is colonialism? How how do you actually decolonize a society? You know, it's not as simple as the Dutch or the British leaving. You know, what's left behind? How do people think? Um, the sort of racist assumptions that get embedded, do they ever get challenged? Um, are we ever done being... Are we ever done with that decolonization yeah. process? And that was really interesting reading it. As a Singaporean, reading it from an Indonesian writer who was reflecting on, you know, a, a different experience of colonialism, but very much similar issues. And I think that would be interesting to explore again, um, particularly next year when Singapore's talking about bicentennials, but, you know, what has colonialism done to Southeast Asia and so many other contexts. So recently I had a journalist pitchers who said, you know, this is not an urgent story, but it might be interesting to look also at, you know, colonialism in, in Myanmar and how that's kind of, left behind a lot of conflict, you know, a lot of the armed conflict between ethnic groups have stemmed from the way that the British played them against each other and sort of, you know, deals and agreements that were never upheld. And so, you know, that could be an interesting theme that really transcends borders. And that's something that we all share. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for Singapore, of course, we... uh we use a, 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 par- a British sort of Westminster par- parliamentary system, legal system, right? We use a, a very Western uh, idea of capitalism to organize our economic lives. We use systems inherited from the British colonial era to govern our social lives. But then we don't want foreign influence and we believe in Western, no, I mean, in Asian values, not Western values. I mean, these, these, these are fundamentally a conflict with each other, right? We need to think about um, you know, our, our the very assumptions which govern our lives, and and I, I hope new narrative can, yeah, can play some role in that. I suppose contribute to some some critical thinking of this. 
We've also hoped yeah. to, so not only to tell stories that transcend borders and link people, to also work in ways that transcend borders and link people. So yeah. we're looking, keeping an eye out for regional stories that we can do not by flying one person around the region, because not only is that tremendously expensive, it's you can't find one person who is who's got deep knowledge of every part of this region. So we were thinking it would be better moving ahead if we could do regional stories by linking freelancers in different cities and getting them to work together. So that's one thing we're looking at. We've talked to different you know, publications in different countries about maybe working together. So it's, nothing's been set in stone yet, but there's a lot of interest in finding ways to support each other because everybody is trying to do the best they can on very little resources. And particularly now, you know, for example, I would say subscribe to New Narrative, but I would also say subscribe to um, independent Burmese news outlets, news publications in Myanmar, because as we can all see now with the jailing of the Reuters journalists, Aung San Suu Kyi's government is not interested in press freedom. It's extremely difficult to do independent journalism in Myanmar. Um, these newsrooms struggle to pay their staff even though a journalist in Myanmar already doesn't earn very much, they still struggle to pay their stuff. So the least that we can do in Singapore is at least subscribe to them and put some money towards enabling them to do that sort of journalism. So we also hope to build this sort of solidarity between newsrooms. One of the things we, we did, like because we have this freelancers Slack channel, when the Plum Hem Post was sold, and there was all this fallout that they were live-tweeting, basically. So the journalists of the Palumpan Post were tweeting it from within the newsroom, and you could almost read in real time on Twitter this newsroom crumble. And like it was really tragic because it was the crumbling of an independent newspaper in Cambodia. And there was a, there was a lot of chatter on our Slack channel from contributors in Vietnam, in Myanmar, in Indonesia, of like, what can we do? Can we do something? And obviously, we don't have the resources to hire all of them. So the best we could do was, you know, we put out a tweet that said, you know, if there are stories that got killed, got pulled from Phnom Penh Post, we could probably publish those. Um, one journalist came back and said, you know, they, they dealt with it themselves. They put it on Google Drive and they shared it themselves as PDFs. Um, but we also said, well, from going on in, if those of you who've either been fired or resigned but still are in Cambodia, if you want to have a go at freelancing, pitch us, you know, we can, we can't hire you full time, but we can pay you for the stories that you do for us. And so we did actually get journalists who pitch us. Um, a lot of our Cambodian stories actually come from people who were at the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh Post. For us, uh, I mean, to come back to our own brush with governments and regulation, uh, I'd say the biggest benefit of the Accra incident is actually we gained almost 100 members in the two weeks after the press release. So, you know, if, if that's what happens uh, every time we, we have a, a brush with uh, authoritarianism, then uh, I suppose we should be glad <laughs> it worked out pretty well for us. Uh, we've also got a lot of new members in the past week, actually, just before this <coughs> podcast. Um, but we're running out of time. So I think uh, let's, uh, the last question I think that I wanted to talk about, the future of new narrative, what are we going to do in the next year and what are our plans? I mean, we've, had, we've been very lucky to have had opportunities um, in Southeast Asia and outside of Southeast Asia to make links, to build 
networks, basically. So, you know, you've been invited to conferences to talk about new narrative. Yeah. Um, I'm going at the end of this year, this month to Warsaw to speak at the Outriders Summit and the Outriders Network, um, which is being built to be an international network to join to, to join uh, journalists from around the world together who are interested in putting stories first. So that's what we're talking about. How can we enable each other to make sure that the story comes first before media, corporate interests and advertising and all that. So I get to go to Warsaw end of this month to talk about new narrative. And just yesterday I was talking to them. They were briefing me about what it was. And then they just kind of went, um, by the way, you're in the morning session after two Pulitzer Prize winners. So that's fine. And no pressure. Uh, send us your speech draft by next week. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've been very lucky that we've had a lot of support from other journalists, from, you know, the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong was very supportive during the ECRA thing. And I went to speak at their journalism conference. And we've we've definitely felt quite surprised because sometimes we hear of people having read new narrative that we hadn't really thought about. Oh yeah, yeah. In Oslo, uh, so in Oslo, my session was with Raju Narisetti, who's former managing editor of Washington Post and then CEO of Gizmodo, right? And so this guy and PJ Thumb, managing director of New Narrative. I mean, that was really intimidating, but he was really nice, really lovely chap. Uh, but then this lady in the audience stood up and asked a question and later I spoke to her and she, it turned out she learned of New Narrative um, by talking to Maria Ressler, who's CEO of Rappler in the Philippines. And, you know, for, for uh, those of you who aren't aware, Rappler is huge, right? It is um, a massive, massive independent news website in the Philippines, which President Duterte has tried to shut down, I think, more than once now. And Maria Ressler is, uh, for Southeast Asian journalists, she is uh, a real, real big shot. And so this journalist in Norway says to me, yeah, I was talking to her about journalism. And she says, oh, have you seen this site? New narrative is really good. And when I heard that, I was like, ah, Maria Ressler knows about us. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So yeah, that's fantastic. It's, uh, you know, the support we've gotten all over the world, you know, has been, has been really, really good. I think, uh, you know, we mentioned more regional stories, regional articles. We want to connect people across the regions. Uh, more stories from places where you don't normally get stories from, right? We have had so much praise for this, the most recent story that we published about the, uh, the blasphemy, you know, law. blasphemy law in Indonesia. Um, and I think the way we were able to tell that story is because we had someone on the ground in Medan and in Jakarta to tell that story and very much from a local point of view, right? As opposed to parachute journalism, as, yeah. as they say. And looking for stories from, for example, we're currently working on a story in Sulawesi and in Papua, which has been really difficult. So even foreign correspondents, it's really difficult to get into Papua. And, you know, it's if you're a sole foreign correspondent for a British or American or Australian publication based in Jakarta, it's, it's not always easy to convince your editors that they should fund you to fly to Sulawesi or wherever for for this story or that story, you know. So it's it's really something that we want to look at. Can we pick up local journalists who want to tell these stories? Uh, another thing that one of our Indonesian editors has brought up before is that, you know, a lot of local journalists in Southeast Asia who do very good work are often picked up as fixes for foreign journalists who then get the byline. 
even though the fixer did a lot of the translation, might have found the interviews, and probably, in depending on the context, might bear the risk after the foreign journalist leaves. So she is very happy with the fact that by working with New Narrative, she can get local journalists the credit for the work that they do. I think, um, you know, we want also more languages, more diversity of uh, viewpoints, um, and uh, more um, different formats. I think we, we haven't published as much, uh, as many comics and videos as we've liked. Uh, but, you know, I think it's also about new narrative being a platform. So we're talking to other people who might be interested in, for example, publishing their podcasts or their videos on our platform and using us to get a bigger audience. Um, and, uh, you know, more collaborations and working with other um, media companies or research institutions in Southeast Asia. Okay, so I think uh, that's everything. Let's... Uh, Pause for a moment and uh, let's take some questions. If any of you have any questions, uh, we've provided pen and paper, so please write them down. Or if you want, you can come up and just use the mic. Okay, so I have a question here. I'm assuming this person just wants me to read it and they don't want to come up and ask. Okay. Okay, so first question here. How has membership grown and what is the projected growth? And any plans for more member events or activities? So, uh, as I mentioned, we are at 545 members and uh, assuming uh, most of them then uh, convert their crowdfunding memberships into permanent memberships, we should have around 500 people, hopefully. Uh, so, the growth has been, I think, really, really, really good, actually. You know, we had some ambitious targets um, and uh, having over 500 members, um, you know, has been... Um, I think considering, especially considering the fact that Southeast Asians, I don't think there's a tradition uh, uh, or an expectation or any sort of real experience with paying for the news in this way, right? As opposed to subscribing to a physical paper, paying for the news online is not something very common. And I've, I've spoken to uh, people at other publications around the world, The Economist, for example, you know, and they also struggle to get people to uh, subscribe to their publication. So for us to have over 500 members in just the first year, I think is, uh, is actually really, really good. Um, and I think the main area of growth for us is uh, Indonesia and Malaysia. Uh, Singapore, I think over 80% of our members are from Singapore or live in Singapore. And um, you know, we will always uh, definitely take care of them and talk to them and they're really, really valuable to us. But uh, I think I also, I, 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 my theory is that I think this, this is about as high as we're going to go in Singapore for now. So future growth, I think, is going to come from um, Indonesia and Malaysia, especially since if you look at the site, those are the main areas of coverage that we have right now. Um, the vast majority of our articles are about Indonesia and, uh, and then Malaysia. And I think Singapore is third. So really, that's the direction new narrative is growing. That's, um, and I'm, I'm hoping that in another year or so, we can get to 1,000. I know this is ambitious, but then if you think about Indonesia plus Singapore plus Malaysia, maybe Brunei as well, you know, 300 million people. And 
you know, we don't even need 0.01%. We need 0.001%, you know, that, that few to, to just sign up. Um, and, and we would be sustainable, right, in the, over the long run. I mean, just to, just to add about the members, I think, because um, PJ manages the membership database, so I just get kind of the the updates of numbers. But what I what I really like to kind of I guess put on record to say we really appreciate is that there's been a beyond the subscriptions, there's been a lot of kindness from yes. members. Even you know, like during the Acra decision, there's been people who email in to like, oh, I just want to check in if you're okay. Um, people who show up and just like bring us food because yes. they're worried we don't eat. Um, or like, like the other day we had a meeting with members where they were basically like, what can I do? Do you need more food? Or like, do you literally like need clothes? Are you like so underpaid that you don't have clothes? Should I buy you clothes? Or, you know, what people who constantly ask us what more can they do? And I think it's really, we really appreciate that sort of kindness, um, which really shows that, you know, when when a lot of people say, oh, Singaporeans don't care, Singaporeans are not engaged or apathetic, that's not been the experience that we've had. Yeah, absolutely. The outpouring of love that we have from our members, is it really helps keep us going. You know, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know if the past hour has seemed like it's been... Uh, I've, I don't know if I've made it sound better than it was. It's been a really, really tough year. And our members have really, uh, you know, the, just the sheer support they've shown us has really helped keep us going. As for yeah. members, member events and activities, we do hope to bring back the open meetings in some way. Uh, in, outside of Singapore, we hope also to find ways that we can support local groups who are already doing activities and events. Yeah, I think we'll have to take them online. But before we can do things, we need to be able to know who our members are, right? And in order to know who our members are, we have to build the whole membership system. And in order to build the whole membership system, we need the, to crowdfund. So uh, it's, it's a slow process. So we finished, uh, or we're exiting crowdfunding, although of course we'll always need more money. But now we've built this membership system and we're trying to get all our crowdfunding members to sign on and become permanent members. And once we have that database, then we can hold stuff online for members and um, you know, be able to interact with our members far more directly through our website because we have um, the, the contact info and can message them that way. Right, so it's one after another. So the open meetings, you know, uh, definitely... I found them incredibly valuable and I want them to continue. But of course, um, you know, how they, how they work and how we're going to run it, uh, we'll yet to decide. Yeah. yeah. And, if you, and if you've already kind of registered for your account, you see that during the registration process, we also ask questions about, you know, what areas of expertise you have, how you might be interested. And that's because we want to involve... <coughs> the members a bit more, even in the stories that we do. So for example, if you have a particular area of expertise and a story comes up, you know, maybe that's something we could bounce a few ideas off you even before publication. You could maybe look at a draft and be like, actually, you know, fact-checking, this isn't actually correct. Or like, you know, give your input. Just different ways to involve members because we didn't want new narrative to be 
this one-way process where you give us money and we give you content. You know, we want it to be much more of a community where people are involved because it's not like we have all the experts and then people just read. Yeah. Because the readers are experts themselves in a lot of different things. Yeah, I mean, looking around this room here, you know, I see doctors and lawyers and, you know, so uh, when we have an article about medicine, healthcare, the law, whatever, you know, if you guys are willing, if you indicate when you sign up that you're willing, then we will email you and say, hey, check out this article. What do you think? Do you agree, disagree? You know, what feedback can you give? You're part of the process as well. Right. But again, this required the database and this requires a lot of time to work out how to build this into the whole editorial process, the editing process. And so for all of us, I mean, you know, ultimately, we, there's, only, there's only five part-time staff. No one's full-time, right? So it, everything we do uh, is, is going to be really slow because we simply physically do not have the the manpower to do a lot of things, right? And if we want to do something new, we have to actually raise the money to hire someone yeah. to do it or find some way to pay someone to do it. And it's really important to us, right? Everyone who works for us gets paid. Unless they come to us and say, I want to volunteer and do this for free, then great, fantastic. But it's a really important principle that everyone who works for us gets paid a fair wage so that uh, you know, we have to live up to that standard and, and it may make things slower, but it is really important. And I think also, so to add about the, the way that members can be involved and when we talk about expertise, we don't just mean qualifications. So we don't mean like degree, what degree you have, what, what have you studied. It, it can be, expertise can be as simple as I lived in Hanoi for 10 years and I read this story and there is no way this works because the taxi service doesn't even work this way. Or it's impossible for you to get from this part of town to that part of town in the amount of time that this article says it says you can. And you know, so even local knowledge like that, or you know, if you've lived in some part of Indonesia or Cambodia where people speak in a different sort of dialect and you read the story and you'd be like, there's no way someone from this village would would talk like this or something. You know, even yeah. that is expertise. So that's, that's what we also want to hear from people because we don't want to assume that expertise is only for people who've been to university and got degrees. You know, everybody has deep knowledge about something. Cool. Any, any more questions? Okay, I'm one, one of your subscribers and a member and I am uh, come here to give you more support of what you are doing. I Thank think it's very brave of you, very courageous of you. And you give us, people like us, a lot of encouragement that, uh, you know, there are people who are concerned about the welfare of Singapore. My initial impression was that the new narrative was actually aimed at Singapore politics and so on. But I realized after reading your article that they also cover Southeast Asia region, which is very good. I, I learned a lot from reading your articles and so on. So overall, I think your objective has been very noble. Very good, and uh, yeah, normally I sleep on Saturday afternoon, but I make it a point to come <laughs> in, make it to support you, you and your effort. I think it's very laudable, and please give it up. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, any other questions? Hi, um, do you guys consider yourselves um, activists? Or journalists, or activist journalists. I mean, what are the different shades of grey? Yeah, I mean, 
Uh, thanks, dude. I mean, um, you know, the labels, right? I think uh, the the best response I've 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 got is actually from Neil deGrasse Tyson, who complained about labels as, and no offense, he said it's it's a lazy way to judge someone without actually sitting down and having a conversation with them, you know. And this is this is something which uh, I think is a very negative aspect of. Um, our political environment in Singapore where people are really quick to put labels on you without actually sitting down and asking you, what do you mean by what you said? What do you mean by what you're doing? Right? I mean, if we think of recent events that happened to me, um, you know, a lot of people come out and condemn me. A lot of people come out and defend me. The number of people have actually asked me, what did you mean by this thing you posted on Facebook? Five. Five people, right? Of all, of all the people, and that includes my closest colleagues, right? So I'm already including my closest colleagues, and then five. So I think, I mean, I, I, I think uh, I, I have to agree with Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know, let's not focus on labels, but let's understand each other for who we are, rather than trying to tuck ourselves, you know, tuck other people into boxes. For new narrative, we don't. Uh we don't expect our journalists to be neutral. So we say that in our manifesto as well. And when we talk to journalists, we, we make it clear like, you know, we don't need you to be neutral in a way that some other news publications uh, need, demand. So we have writers, for example, who write about women who are also feminist activists who do organize women's marches and things like that. And, and you know, if as long as the article that you file is substantive and has evidence for what you say, then I don't see why we would discount that just because, oh, you're a feminist, so if you write about women, of course it's biased. But, you know, if you have the proof for what you're saying, why not? And I think if we, if you look at a site, it's quite clear that even if we don't explicitly come out to lobby or, you know, campaign for it, there are particular values that we stand by. So if you look at what we've posted about LGBT issues, if you look at what we've tweeted and retweeted about Reuters journalists in Myanmar or journalists in Cambodia, it's quite clear what our stance is. Um, so I have a question here uh, from the back. Um, the question is, is there a reason why you guys don't do more stories on Singapore instead of the many Indonesian stories? <laughs> yes, good question. <laughs> the reason is because I'm very busy. Um, well, yeah, so that was originally the reason that I am actually editing a lot and I don't have enough time to write. But we do have Singapore stories coming. And one, one thing that I'm really glad about New Narrative for is that before New Narrative, when I was purely freelancing, it was this sort of stressful situation of trying to pitch everywhere and trying to be the Singapore writer that everyone comes to because I need to earn enough. But now that I'm you know, part-time working with New Narrative and at least there's some steady income from this side, um, that pressure is not as much. And so I've been able to spend a lot more time going, okay, how about student journalists who are just graduating, um, people who have just done mid-career switches into journalism, how can, how can I get them published? How can we get them published on New Narrative? Or maybe there's other work from other publications that are coming my way because I've 
done this long enough, that I'm established enough, that editors now look for me instead of me looking for them? How can I pass some of these work on to other Singaporeans so that we can have more independent journalists in Singapore? And so we, we are having um, Singapore stories on the way uh, as long as they all work out. Because we've had some where, you know, the story was on the way and then for, for some reason or other, it didn't, it, it didn't come through. So hopefully we should have some soon. Yeah, we have had ed- uh, stories where people self-censored, basically. The story was written and ready to go, and then they said, we just can't, you know, we're, we're scared of the consequences. Um, you know, even though they, it would have been published under a pseudonym or something, but the fear is there. The fear is real. Um, you know, whether the fear is... Whether we should be feeling the fear is a different thing, but people do fear, and I think that has impacted uh, the stories that we have. Yeah. Okay, next question. Yes. I'm a follower, subscriber, member of your site. So going back to your comment about the, the viewpoint for new narrative um, as being a social justice site, so I think the question, actually to me, the test would be that if there are, I mean, there are usually alternate, uh, more than one point of view to a particular story, so even environmental stories, there might be legitimate grounds on the corporate side as to why you're doing things this way. So the question then would be, how open would you be to actually publishing, uh, say, a, 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 corp- a story from a corporate viewpoint? Because the danger has been too much in social justice is that you might end up like the hoo-ha over the New Yorker cancelling Steve Bannon's appearance in the US, uh, which I thought was very unfortunate. Right? So again, in the case of New Narrative, I hope you actually be more open to all the points of view. I think that's that's a discussion we've had before of um there is a point where you are engaging different viewpoints which we definitely want to do and then we talked about but where is the line between that and then just giving a platform for extremism racism or like irrational hate and things like that so you know basically the the key is do you have evidence for what you're saying so if you're if you're some sort of um if you're a corporate person who says you know we need to you know we need to clear this land you know the villagers say this but we need to if you have the evidence to back it up yes we would publish that but if it was just somebody who is like you know LGBT people are deviants and should have no place in society and the caning is good because we should root out LGBT people, then I don't really see why I should give you a platform to say that. Because that's not evidence-based. That's just your prejudice. So I think that's really... It, it, it isn't always so clear-cut, but that's something that we've talked about. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, received at least one article in the past year where the person was trying to argue something very different. Um, so I sent, I, I sent it back with edits and a list of questions, and then he never got back to me. Um, so, you know, if someone out there is uh, interested in pitching us, we will totally entertain it and, uh, you know, we will take it seriously and we will ask you the same tough questions that we ask of all our correspondents. I think the other thing, the other uh, point I'd make is to sort of question the equivalence. Um, you know, the when uh you know it's it's not like both sides uh or or all the different sides are getting their stories told right the side you know well not side but the sort of very corporate view or the government view they have the money they have the power they have the influence their stories are getting out there 
right? Their stories are being told. But the people on the ground, the people who are losing out, the people who are losing their homes in the case of a, a development, for example, their stories are not being told. So, um, you know, we don't want to simply tell stories that other people are already telling, right? We want to tell the stories that aren't being told. That's our niche. And that's, I think, uh, our also very valuable contribution to discussion and debate about these important issues. Uh, any other questions? So uh, you mentioned earlier that this year has been a difficult year or a challenging year for you. What's one moment this year that has made all that challenge, made it feel worthwhile? I don't know that there would be one moment. I think it's a continuous thing because, I mean, it, it's been a tough year and it's been a stressful year in different ways, but it's also been been a really fun year to like have our team meetings and just kind of hang out because we spend so much time together with, at these team meetings. Um, and I also really enjoy, I actually do really enjoy editing all these stories because I think if I hadn't been editor of New Narrative, I wouldn't have had the time to read all these stories about Southeast Asia in, in the same way. So I could subscribe to different like newspapers or magazines about Southeast Asia, but I just simply wouldn't have had the time. So for example, we have... Um, 163 journalism articles that we've published over the year. I have read every single one of them at least three times because I go over them every time. Um, and I've learned so much about Southeast Asia. So I said, you know, it's been a tough year, but it's definitely been worth it. This year has gone by in a flash, you know, and I feel like I've spent the whole year running flat out, just trying to stay ahead of so many things. Um, you know, all my work at Oxford on, on one side, um, all my academic work, and then on top of that, running new narrative. And then, of course, all the other things that have happened to us throughout the year. Um, and the opportunities that have come our way to speak around the world and to tell our story. Um, yeah, it's just... I'm, I'm, I'm really, really tired, I have to admit. Um, I'm, you know, I have, I'm so energized by the support I get and uh, working with the, the team, right? Uh, with Kirsten, with Aisha, with Fabriana, you know, with our volunteers, they're incredible people. And I have to agree with Kirsten that that really makes it worthwhile to know, you know, every time someone comes up to me and thanks me for the work we're doing. And this is, this is one of the things that actually, I, I don't know if it's the best or worst thing, but almost every time I go in public now, someone comes up and thanks me for what we're doing, you know, and as an introvert, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's a big struggle because I, I, I'm very awkward and I, you know, I never know what to say. And, but then know. sometimes you get free stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So several times now, people have insisted on buying something for me or, you know, giving me free food or, you know, just stuff. It's just, yeah. I mean, it's so kind and I, I, I never know what to say. It's, uh, it's kind of, it's really awkward. 
But we, we yeah. joked about um, if we could get a photo of PJ that all of us would carry in our wallets mm. as a sort of friend of PJ to see if uh. that free stuff would rub off on us. But we've, <laughs> we've not yet tried. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think people need to recognize Kirsten more for what she does too, you know, the, the kind of work she does the, and how she does it uh, fearlessly and never stops. I mean, I couldn't do this without her, so I think... If you ask me to do one thing, I want to pay tribute to Kirsten Thank and you. the job that she has done. Okay, on that note, I think we're out of time. So I want to thank our audience for coming here today. Thank you so much, all of you, for being a part of this. I want to thank uh, our members, especially our 545 crowdfunding members, supporters who have helped us get through a very tough first year. And uh, I want to thank everyone who's listening today for uh, tuning in. Uh, tune in next week when we have episode four of Southeast Asia Dispatches. Um, and of course, uh, Political Agenda will be back in two weeks. And if you enjoy what we do, please do go to newnarrative.com and take a look at the site. Uh, and you can join at newnarrative.com slash join. It is only $5 a month or $52 US a year. That's just $1 a week. So please do support us if, if you like what we do. Thank you very much, everyone, and see you next time.